Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets, Inc. Kane Brothers bankers work in some of the most interesting segments of the healthcare industries. They work with organizations and business models that are helping to change American healthcare for the better. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm also CEO of Foresight Health. I'm a recovering investment banker myself who discovered late in my career that I was always meant to be a journalist. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. Each piece becomes an exercise in examining a fascinating segment of the dynamic healthcare landscape. The focus of our articles and this podcast is on how to make America's fragmented, inefficient, and often broken healthcare system more integrated, consolidated, efficient, and customer-focused so that it delivers greater value and innovation to the American people. Today, I'll be interviewing Bill Pomerantz. Bill is a senior banker in Kane Brothers' post-acute care and senior living advisory practices. He has 35 years' experience in advising post-acute care providers, continuing care retirement centers, and senior living facilities. Bill specializes in negotiating joint ventures between post-acute care providers and hospital systems in order to expedite acute care discharge planning and support population health management. Bill has a BA from the University of Illinois and an MA from Berkeley. Bill, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers are always in. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I know you've got an interesting background because you've told me about it on more than one occasion. So why don't you t- share with our audience how you got into healthcare care and, and why you have this particular interest in senior housing? Well, as a senior in college, I was an economics major, and I was very interested in inner city and rural economic development. And what I realized is that inner city and rural areas might not have much disposable income uh, from wages. They had considerable dollars going into those communities in the form of third-party vouchers and reimbursement, Medicaid, Medicare, meal programs, uh, Section 8 housing vouchers, brought a lot of money into these communities. The problem with it was that that money came in and was immediately siphoned out by outside providers. And so the money didn't stay in the community, and money that stays in a community actually recirculates. It continues to circulate. It's called the multiplier effect. Yeah, compounds. And it it compounds, and it creates uh, economics in that area and jobs, and jobs that are particularly suited to people who might not have advanced education. And when I graduated, I went on to work with the Ford Foundation, and one of our first projects was in Bedford-Stuyvesant, where we went ahead and created a large community clinic that was one of the first public HMOs in New York, and senior housing and a skilled nursing facility. And that resulted in the ability for eight or 900 low-income workers to have jobs and contracts and home care, skilled nursing aides, which led to the development of a credit union, which then provided money for these people to be able to start businesses and have mortgages. So I did that with the Ford Foundation for approximately five, six years, both in New York and in other locations in the United States. 
And uh, that took me to the mid-80s when all of a sudden these facilities were being built, operated, and people needed to learn how to actually do a good job. It wasn't just the economic model. It was how do we actually serve people? Um, how do we do a better job? Yeah. How do we operate? Yeah. And, at the, and simultaneous to that, hospital systems in particular were getting interested in senior living and post-acute care as part of a vertical integration strategy where they thought they would make profit um, and provide good community care in their communities by delving into senior living. And that could have been facility-based, home care-based, social services. And so I became sort of the one man in the community out there who really knew this area. And so I went from working with the Ford Foundation to establishing my own corporation, own company, where I was working with some of the larger hospital uh, systems. Uh, Did that for about 10 years, and then um, that resulted in a number of tax-exempt bond financings for those hospital systems in the form of senior housing, skilled nursing, post-acute. And the banker I was working with at the time said, you know, you work so hard on that side, why don't you come over to the investment banking side, and and you'd be welcome here because you could help from beginning of a project all the way to the financing of the project. So that's how I got into investment banking. Wow. Well, thank goodness. (laughs) Your country needed you and still does. Well, the other thing I noticed, just to add, is that structuring a deal could result in a much lower cost of capital than just trying to beat up on contractors or spend time trying to decide which door to use in a building. Mm -hmm. That financing just was a much bigger impact on the affordability of a project and the feasibility of a project. And so structuring deals actually had a real purpose, not just providing a check at a construction start. Well, Bill, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the word affordable because the article we wrote together had the intriguing title of Mission Critical Repurposing, Converting Aging Senior Living Properties to Affordable Housing. You know, and, and in the article, we did a deep dive on a couple of distinct social challenges which turned out to be interrelated. And as you pointed out, with the right innovation and determination, aging senior living centers can become sources for new affordable housing. Could you, uh, could you give us a little bit of your uh, thinking in how you brought these two phenomenon together, the, the aging of the senior living facilities, that base in the country, with this increasing need for affordable housing, and why the two uh, problems may actually, when put together, create a solution. Let me try to be um, brief but give a little bit of history. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the mid-1980s, most housing that would be called senior living housing or long-term care facilities was provided by nonprofits. And they were very much mission-driven, or they were oriented towards serving a particular constituency. could have been uh, religious, it could have been uh, professional, and it could, or it could have been fraternal, such as the Masons. That was providing a niche, a service that was needed. Um, 
But along in about the mid to late 80s, the private sector entered the senior living uh, market very aggressively. And we've seen for basically the last 30 years, the private sector go from being a minor factor in senior living to probably two-thirds to 75% of all senior living in the country now is private sector. What's fueled that growth, the the private sector growth? Are they more on top of the market, um, have better funding? Well, I think my belief is that it's because the senior living market was basically a, a social service-driven okay. uh, product when it was with the nonprofits. It was trying to be the best old folks' home that it could be. And the private sector saw that senior living was a very fragmented market with all types of segments within it, from the very frail elderly to the you know, tennis-playing, golfing senior who might still be working. And so they just created a range of products that were more attractive to the marketplace. Right. Um, and, and the dollars that flowed into that um, were, were tremendous, and that we now uh, have in our marketplace the belief that senior housing is its own category of capital um, and should be part of a larger investment real estate portfolio. Really interesting. And you forgot to, or you neglected to mention cocktails at uh, 5 o'clock and 6 at some of these places. <laughs> right. Well, that depends on uh, a lot of <laughs> a lot of things, and those licenses are not always easy to get. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But you're right. So, you know, as, as the industry was going through this, this transition um, from as much social service and neighborhood-based to kind of broader, um, you know, customer-based, uh, organized around sort of degree of health and activities and interests and so on, um, what, what, what happened to the aging facilities, mostly in the inner cities? As, as so what you had is basically a, a split between those sponsors that understood early on that their senior constituency wanted more upscale product. There was also a rise, I think, in the wealth of seniors uh, in their ability to afford that product. But it was a, but it's relatively a small segment of the senior population that could afford these upper income uh, communities. But it became the place where everyone was competing. Um, and as new product came in um, from the private sector, the older nonprofits just didn't invest in their communities in the same way that the private sector invested. Also, the way the nonprofit sector builds senior living and finances senior living is very dependent on tax-exempt bonds. Tax-exempt bonds tend to be very heavy in terms of cash reserves for financing. So you'd often have one to two years of cash reserves um, to get a credit rating in the tax-exempt world. That's the opposite in the for-profit world where you might have two payrolls worth of cash on the balance sheet. So as your product uh, appreciated, you are continuously harvesting that appreciation and putting a new, a new product or expanding your product, whereas nonprofits, to get their cash up to investment-grade levels, might wait five, six, eight, ten years after they did one project to do a follow-up project. So just the structure of the financing resulted in the 
uh, nonprofit sector having less money to invest uh, because they were basically harboring it for reserves to get credit ratings. And in the meantime, they were becoming less competitive because they weren't putting the money back into their projects. Right. So that gets us to why we have a, a supply, I guess, of facilities that are no longer cutting edge, probably have trouble you know, attracting residents, um, are in some level of decline and maybe even disrepair. I would also add, yeah. David, I think it's an important factor is that neighborhoods also have changed. Sure. So even where neighborhoods have stayed middle or upper middle class, they've changed from who, who lives there. And so most of these projects built 50s through early 80s were pretty much oriented towards um, an Anglo older adult. As the United States has changed, um, even as economics has stayed uh, or even gotten better in some of these communities, nonprofits really have not yet figured out how to reach these minority populations, Mm -hmm. minority elderly populations. And that's ongoing. Some are doing a little better than others, but it's hard to to do that in these mixed communities where many of these minority communities want to have the cultural fit, the food fit. There's just a mismatch, and it's hard to bring in the new populations in these communities while the old constituencies have either faded out, died out, or moved away. Yeah. So they're confronting kind of a Hobbesian choice of of sorts, you know, uh, continue trying to keep it going as the market declines or uh, or sell probably at fire sale prices. But you offer a different uh, path out that actually meets a a chronic need that uh, in many of these same neighborhoods for affordable housing. Uh, And we also have the availability of tax credits, various types of tax credits that can support this. So could you shift our discussion a bit from um, where we are now with an oversupply of, of senior living facilities, not-for-profit senior living facilities, mission-led organizations that are really struggling um, to this new need and how we can take advantage of tax credits and changing market dynamics to repurpose in vital ways, these these facilities? So it's very interesting. A couple of things to understand before I get into all the dynamics. Um, we need to talk a little bit about what, af- what the definition of affordability means. And the definition when we talk about affordable housing and affordable rents and income qualifications, we, the, the, the information that comes out of HUD that sets these standards for what is an affordable level of care or affordable shelter, and I, I should emphasize, we're always talking about shelter here. Mm-hmm. So in affordable housing, we're not yet talking about services. We're just talking about providing the basic shelter and the utilities that go along with that shelter. Um, so those income uh, limits tend to be set against area median incomes, and that those area median incomes tend to be targeted towards working families or individuals, whereas seniors are retired, so you end up with an overlap between what a senior might consider to be middle class with actually what's affordable. 
so I mention that because many of the re- existing residents already in the communities we're talking about, the aging nonprofit communities, they're already eligible for affordable housing because their incomes, while they think of themselves as middle or moderate, are really in the category of affordable. Mm. So it's, it's an important consideration. It's also important thinking forward that there's income not only for shelter that's available for seniors, but that they might have some, because they're qualifying paying rents based on a percentage of their income, they might have some dollars available to actually pay for some services, but most importantly, they're qualified for affordable housing, even though they might think of themselves as moderate to middle. So walk us through a hypothetical example of how we could do one of these conversions. Okay, so uh, typically we're talking about a urban project, almost always an urban project. And I want to stay with urban projects because rural have their own dynamics. So an urban product is probably in the center core, because remember these were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when most of these constituency groups lived in uh, neighborhoods where they gathered or were grouped. And so buildings were typically built either in those communities or where the, that population was migrating to. So maybe the first area of migration. And the, the good news is those tend to be areas that are now being redeveloped or being rediscovered by the millennials so economic activities occurring in these areas, they're usually located near public transportation or other uh, complementary services that makes life good in these communities, walkable communities, um, communities with a lot of uh, cultural, recreational activity. Well, and enough, enough density, too, to build services and retail around it. So, yeah. Correct. And... So let's take a typical project, might be uh, 150 to 200 units that was some combination of apartments and skilled nursing. And so put a square footage on that, let's say that's 150 to 200,000 square feet. Well, the value of that building is that it has a structure, typically it was a concrete structure, so that means it's reusable. So you can take that structure, not necessarily the business that's in there now, but the structure itself can be evaluated. And if it's got decent bones to it, as they say, if it's got decent bones to it, it can be sold to a partnership of which that partnership is both a developer and an investor who wants to buy that property and convert it to affordable or low-income housing for the advantage of the tax credits they will receive for making that investment. I think to your point, because it's in these urban areas, the uh, potential to get maybe even higher density out of these buildings than they historically have um, has come about from probably three different ways. Most states over the last 20 years have uh, created zoning laws that add both higher density allowances for senior projects and for affordable projects. So in a community that might have land zoned for 100 units, 
typical to see 20% more for seniors and 20% over that for affordable. So a 100-unit project for a middle-income or upper-income project could have 140 affordable units based on state and local zoning. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, we we were talking a little bit before uh, the podcast started about social determinants of health, combining shelter and services, uh, the fact that America seems to rediscover this basic truth that uh, uh, human beings are social creatures and when they live in, uh, in neighborhoods in contact with others, they, they do better. How do we, how do we put together um, programs that sort of enable people to lead better lives, better, more connected lives, and in the process actually save Medicare and Medicaid and others that are paying for health care real money um, and by virtue of investing in sort of the front end, shelter, primary care, uh, behavioral health and so on, uh, good food, uh, create lives for people that are, are better and more productive and in the same time save the overall system money because we're spending less on symptoms and more on root causes of, of disease? Well, the problem, there's a problem there. And the, the opportunity is that when you group several hundred seniors together, particularly several hundred seniors who might begin to have problems with chronic illness and are becoming higher utilizers of health care, when you group them together and uh, you can service them in mass and true economies of scale, the overall system saves money. So what I mean the overall system, Medicare itself might save money if you can uh, provide economies of scale. Let's give some examples. Um, home health care to 200 seniors across a large neighborhood would require, uh, think about it, one, one worker for every five daily visits. In a congregated setting, that same worker could see eight to 10 patients in the course of a day. So you save on home care. You literally can view people on a daily basis if they show up for activities or if you're checking on them in the room. Seeing a person, uh, if you're a trained healthcare professional, you can tell a person who's about to go into distress sure. and, maybe, and maybe save a 911 uh, uh, visit, which can cost the system multiple dollars. The problem is that housing is treated separately from health care and the tax codes in the housing admission criteria do not allow for the mandating of the residents being enrolled in any one health care plan or any one insurance plan. So the way you have to do, structure this is you bring providers to the site and hopefully over time, the seniors see that these providers are a real benefit. Those providers tend to be uh, covered by one or two insurance companies. So the seniors who have freedom of choice have to enroll into the health care programs that pay for the providers so that the savings to those health care providers makes it worth their time and effort to invest in providing staff to the community. But it takes time, and it's more you're, you're selling the benefit as opposed to being able to mandate that the resident also take the insurance. 
Do, Bill, do you think the more we get full-risk capitation, the more we're going to see the type of logical distribution of resources so that shelter and support and services um, accompany one another? I would hope so. I think it's going to have to start with the middle and upper middle class as they're choosing their senior living options um, and they're choosing between, I'd love to give the example, it was in my own family, where um, my mother was insured by a particular provider and she's looking at market rate assisted living Basically, many of them look the same, same granite countertop, same fitness center, all of that. But in one, there was a nurse from her particular healthcare provider who was there three days a week. That nurse had access to her medical records, which tied to her physician. So for the same $7,500 a month, she might as well go to the facility where she was tied to her healthcare provider. But that was a total freedom of choice. In affordable housing, the the seniors, you know, the, I, I don't know how to put it. In affordable housing, the senior has more freedom of choice in a way than even middle and upper middle income people because you can't mandate this service. So they have to see that it's a benefit yeah. in order to enroll. Ballpark, how big an opportunity do you think there is in the country right now to do conversions of these declining not-for-profit. Yeah, go ahead. Just saw data that indicated last year there were 200 facilities that nonprofits either closed or basically, I don't want to say gave away, but more or less gave away. Yeah. So there was 200 last year. That's up from about 100 10 years previously. And I think it's important to note that I'm very focused on senior housing and senior housing that's no longer attractive to the middle class. But what we're talking about could also be true for redundant hospitals. Um, you see uh, redundant school systems, um, school buildings. It, you know, the, the concept of conversion to affordable senior housing goes beyond just existing senior housing. I just have noticed that this is a, uh, an area that we have value. And the reason I, I really think it's important to introduce this to this existing senior housing providers is they want to carry on mission. They want a legacy for these properties that maybe their grandparents on the board started right. and now they're on the board and they're struggling with what to do. So they could continue the mission through repurposing either by direct ownership and operations of, of these new affordable issues or they could monetize and, and redirect toward social services or something else that's of a more immediate need to their to their members. Correct, and I, I started this for a client who basically wanted to take the money from selling the existing structure and, and take that money to the community that their constituency has migrated to. Um, so it provided the equity for the next project. Um, that was the first uh, time we ever thought of uh, doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's an exciting concept. Um, it's probably a good place for us to to land the conversation. Bill, any last thoughts uh, you want to leave the audience on um, this conversion process, the opportunity, uh, what comes out on the other end uh, in terms of better better oriented, more holistic shelter and services? 
The only thing, I would end with two things uh, regarding mission, that for even for those nonprofits that have moved ahead to do more upscale, as you mentioned, the cocktails at five, but the swimming pools and, you know, in the 2,000 square foot units, doing mission-related housing development can be helpful in two ways. One, serve a constituent, as we've talked about, but it also helps justify your tax-exempt status. Mm-hmm. It helps justify your real estate exemption for your new nonprofit, where the fees to get in might be higher than any of the proprietary competitors. So it allows you to go to these various agencies and say, you know, we have a mission to serve all seniors, not just those who are upper income. So I think there's compelling reasons uh, beyond mission, but just smart business and strategy. Well, amen to that. Uh, you know, we've been talking with, with Bill Pomerantz today on House Calls regarding a very creative I- idea that Bill has to repurpose declining senior living facilities into affordable housing and the many ways that that can happen uh, beyond senior living facilities and really any declining facilities to preserve mission, to promote health, uh, to build healthier communities, more more productive communities, and to make life better for all of us. So, Bill, thanks for, for sharing uh, this with the House Calls audience. Uh, you've been a great guest, and you've proven once again that the Kane Brothers bankers are always in. All right. Well, thank you, David. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Kane Brothers is an investment bank focused exclusively on health care. The bankers at Kane stand apart because of their deep knowledge of the healthcare industry and their practical know-how when it comes to executing complex transactions in all healthcare sectors. These include healthcare services, medical technology, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dave Johnson. I'm a recovering investment banker who discovered late in my career I was always meant to be a journalist and maybe even a podcaster. I'm also the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of two books, the most recent of which is The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I love talking to other revolutionaries who are driving change in the healthcare industries. 